wonder, have you ever noticed um, that there are so many people who say they love Jesus or are pretty open when it comes to talking about God, but when it starts to talk about the church, they tend to close right up. Have you ever noticed that? Um, people who have some kind of spirituality and actually say yes to Jesus. But when you come to talk about why you should be part of a community of Christians, they just sort of seem to go cold and turn off, as if um, the two couldn't be further from being different from each other. Um, I, what I've found is that as you dig a little bit deeper into the lives of people, who love God and love Jesus but don't want anything to do with the church, what I often find is just beneath the surface, not too far under, is often an experience, uh, something that happened for them when they were in the church. They might have been going along when they were a child or when they were a teenager and something that someone said was just so completely ridiculous or so horrible or someone acted in such a way when they said they were doing something, they lived in a different way, that the people have often got deep within them this kind of feeling like, huh, I'll have Jesus, I'll have God, but forget the church. Um, I think today, more than ever, there is a need for Christians to live in a way that consistently reflects the faith that they have in Jesus. Uh, I think uh, today what is crucial for Christians and for people who profess to name the name of Jesus to actually live in a way that matches up to the faith that they proclaim. Uh, we could talk for hours about people who have, whose lives have publicly became known for the things that they have done, leaders particularly. Just recently, uh, I don't know if you became aware, but a large church in Adelaide had a, had a pastor who uh, was diagnosed with cancer. He told everybody that he had cancer. And he was a musician and strong leader in the church. And so what he did was he uh, started wearing tubes, you know, as he was playing, and he wrote a song saying that God is my healer. And it was a fantastic song that the church had faith that God would heal this man from his cancer. And they sung, I believe you're my healer. I believe you're more than enough for me. With passion and vigor, which is true, God has revealed himself as the one who heals. Not always, but that's part of his character. And just recently, to this large church's um, shock and grief, the pastor explained that he didn't have cancer at all and he just made up the whole thing. And he'd written the, the song in, uh, in that um, and, and the whole thing had been made up. And there were people who had believed for healing and sometimes seen it happening or had prayed and now are saying, I don't know what to believe anymore if my leader has just fooled us all. And we can look and say, oh, those churches in Adelaide, you know, we know what they're like. Uh -uh. I've grown up in my growing up period where I've sat right where you are, where the preacher 
gave a message. And at the end of the message, he said, I have, I have been found inappropriately having relationships with women. And I remember hearing it. I remember seeing the church crying and, and weeping. I remember the two families where he had had relationships with the people in the families being broken up. I remember getting home and my, hearing the, the front page of The Truth, that terrible, horrible magazine uh, newspaper had the whole story of what my pastor had done, right front page. Um, I remember hearing not so long ago that one of the highly um, honoured pastors in the church that I grew up with had been found that he had sexually abused children, even while he was our pastor in our church. And, you know, when we hear these stories, it's so quick to throw stones at other people. But all churches uh, can have a real danger of living one way while believing something else. So many times the cause of the feelings in people's hearts as they say, I love Jesus but not the church, is because they've witnessed or seen a sin or something that's been um, completely yuck that they've seen in the lives of someone who professes to love Jesus, often leaders. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, Aaron Kennedy spoke to us men. He did a great job of, of speaking to us about authenticity in men's lives as, as we follow Jesus, how we can be authentic. And one of the quotes he quoted was from a man called Brennan Manning. And it just sums up this point that we need to act in a way that we believe God wants us to act, that our actions would match our beliefs. And this is what it says, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge with their lips Jesus and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You can understand it, can't you, when people are like that? And the challenge, I think, as we think about that, is to think perhaps you've witnessed this yourself here in the church. I mean, perhaps as you've been coming along, you might have found this happening already. I mean, maybe you've seen people that you know and assumed were very mature Christians, but suddenly you find yourself shocked and disappointed as they gossip and slander unfairly people right to you. Maybe you've just been, you know, I, I thought they were godly people, but that was just terrible what they shared with me and so inappropriate. Maybe you've been in a small group and you've respected people in your group, but then all of a sudden they've shared the most inappropriate and, you know, disgusting joke with you. And you think, how can that match up? Maybe you've been in a relationship or friendship with people and all of a sudden the anger has, has just overwhelmed you of this person and you thought that they loved Jesus but this is hard to take. You know what makes it worse when these things happen? Is when it's a leader. Someone who's affirmed widely by the church and when they act in these kind of ways it's upsetting, it's unstabling, it's, a, it's offensive. 
When leaders show by their actions that their behaviour and their beliefs don't match, it's terrible. To see a leader, to see a pastor, one who handles God's word, one who has pastoral oversight over many people, acting in a way that's offensive is terrible. Why? Because people in the church are largely affected. I mean, if a pastor really blows it, many people find it hard to keep believing. We hope they wouldn't. We hope everybody's eyes would be on Jesus. But when a pastoral leader makes a big blue, it's very hard when they do things that are offensive. Another reason why it's terrible is not only for, for you guys, but for people on the outside. You know, there were people all over Melbourne that day when my pastor read his letter, reading the truth. Truth. And, and they were finding out the, the details of what my pastor had done. And it affected, you know, the community must have been reading and looking and saying, how, how look, that's the church. You can have that. And another reason I think this is terrible when this sort of stuff happens is that Satan is delighted because Satan wants every single way he can to destroy God's work, to destroy what God is doing. And he delights when churches, when leaders fail. In fact, I think Satan is actively pursuing leaders of high profile leaders who are responsible for many because he wants to bring them down. So how can we, as a church, how can we together ensure that pastors, that that key leaders in the church are people who don't bring shame to the name of Jesus? How How can we ensure that? That don't bring shame to the name of Jesus, that don't, that don't, Cause the bride of Christ to be looked on with disrespect. The question, I think, is just as relevant today, 2008, right this Sunday, as it was right back in the time when Paul wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, to the church in Ephesus. I think it's a question that we need to look at urgently today because as the church continues to advance, if we neglect to think about how we can help pastoral leaders and leaders and ourselves, all of us, live in a way that doesn't bring shame to the name of Jesus, then we will continue to thrive and we'll continue to grow. And if we look at it with due diligence, you won't be unnecessarily held back in your Christian walk. People outside the church won't look and mock, and Satan will be frustrated, not delighted. So in 1 Timothy, you might have it open there and turn to 1 Timothy. And Paul, we know now, was writing to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. And he was urging Timothy to take, and the church there, to take a strong stand against the false teachers. He was telling you know, that he should command them not to teach false doctrines. 
because what they were doing was they were causing disruption in the church, disputes and arguments within the church. And what was supposed to be a church that was one and growing together and becoming more loving and and loving one another, it was disputing and arguing and fighting. And so Paul wrote to Timothy and so that the church would be able to read the letter as well. And what we've seen is that some of the false teachers it seems highly likely that they were elders in the church. They were people that were teaching. And in this uh, letter, Paul's going to talk about the teaching and how important it is because the false teachers were teaching false doctrine. And it seems that some of the elders or even pastors, people who are overseers, were handling God's word wrongly, were teaching falsely, it seems. And the actions of those were in danger of leading people astray. And we see... There are some, and it says in chapter 1, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. These guys were blaspheming and they were causing others to do the same. And Paul's saying, we've got to get, you know, got to deal strongly with these. And then at the end of uh, last last week, we saw that there were some women, uh, sorry, in in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, it says in verse 15 about the women who'd been really, you know, uh, responding strongly to the teaching of the false teachers, it says that some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. So because of the false teachers, because of what was happening, people were being led astray and Satan was delighted by what was happening there in Ephesus. And so Timothy sees not only men but women are being led astray and their actions of, of these false teachers and what was happening and the disruption that was happening in the church and the way that the churches were starting to preach and teach this gospel of exclusivity that says it's only for some with these endless myths and genealogies, they were, the outside seemed to be looking and thinking, what is going on in that church? You know, so Paul said you should pray for all people so that we could live in a way that pleases God, live lives that may be peaceful and quiet in all godliness so that the community won't have a go at us and try and you know, think we're, we're, we're silly. All of this was causing them to be in great danger of falling into the trap, into Satan's trap. So here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 to 7, Paul writes some key qualifications for those who would lead in the church at Ephesus. As some elders were no doubt living in a way that didn't match the actions that came from faith in Christ, Paul now gives these instructions to Timothy so that the church can see and so that the church can know when these leaders were living outside of what God had wanted them to do, they could hold them to account. They could also remove some of them. And when they put new uh, teachers, new elders, new uh, overseers in, what they could do then is know on what grounds they should look for their replacements. And this is what it says. Let's read this passage. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, 
able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Paul begins in this section by saying, what I'm about to say to you is a trustworthy saying. It's something that's trustworthy. You can, uh, you can count on this. Um, he'd said this before earlier. You remember when he said, this is a trustworthy saying, Christ died for sinners. Remember he said that? Uh, and, and we said that's what he, uh, he, he was saying. Well, here again is another thing he's saying. You can ensure that this is true. Listen to it. Take it on board. And here's what he says. If anyone sets his heart, you know, aspires or desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, um, right here, uh, we see that someone who wants to be a, a leader in God's church, someone who wants to oversee people, who to pastorally care, to be a pastor in God's church, that's a good thing. You know what? There's not many people that actually think that still today, I think. Being a pastor's a good thing. Oh, I reckon that, okay? You know why? There's an article just recently, August the 14th, so that's just a, a month ago, and a guy, Bernard Salt, who's a dem- demographer, he wrote this article in The Australian, and his headline was, Better Start Vicar Nicking as Preachers Peter Out. It's a good uh, thing, isn't it? He wrote this. He said, I'm concerned for the spiritual well-being of the Australian nation. New figures extracted from the 2006 census show there are 14,800 ministers of religion in Australia, which works out to be about one per 1,500 residents. He says, in fact, 48% are age 50 plus, which means that within a decade much of this nation's preaching stock could be either retired or doddering into old age. And the reason is that the 7,100 ministers age 50 plus are backed up by just 5,300 who are aged 35 to 50. The pipeline of preachers is petering out. What we need is a 457 visa class designed to snare religious ministers from overseas. This process would be known as a vicar nicking. (laughs) And this, of course, assumes all religious ministers are complexly interchangeable. I think uh, what you need to know is it's good to be a pastor. 
I look, just look at the life I have, hey? <laughs> uh, Mandy and I, we just sleep in and have rest. It's fun. It's like, no, but seriously, isn't it interesting? A lot of people are thinking today, no, I'd never be one of those. I'd never be one of those. But you know what? I think now we're going to talk a little bit about what a pastor or an overseer or an elder should be in a church. And as we look at it, you know, you might not want to be a pastor ever. Like this might be not a career change you're thinking of at all. But if you have a gift, maybe you have the gift of mercy, all the things that Paul's going to talk about here are very important for you because he's talking about living a life that doesn't bring shame to the name of Jesus. And we all should want to be the best mercy givers we could be if that's our gift or the best, you know, um, hospitality people with the gift of hospitality. So all of us have gifts, every single one of us. None of us want to bring shame to the name of Jesus. So all of this should be right, directly applicable to you. But boy, I hope some of you feel like God's calling you to the ministry because it's a noble task. It's wonderful to handle God's word well, to, to lead people so that they can grow in their spiritual life and become stronger more obedient disciples of Christ. Nothing uh, I could do could ever match the, the deepness of feeling like I'm doing something very, very worthwhile in my role. I have a deep sense that God called me to be a pastor. I have a deep joy in fulfilling this. And I have a deep satisfaction knowing every time I go to bed at night that I've been trying this day to help people know and love Jesus more. So have your heart open if God's calling you, don't let the dwindling numbers or preacher picking going on worry you or turn you off. So this is what he says, an overseer. And the word here is interchangeable, it seems, with the word elder. Now, there's so much discussion. We could have, we could have a series based on just these verses here because out of the wording that occurs in, in this verse... If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, has come a whole lot of different structures of church life. And I don't want to get right into that, but I'd love to talk to you if you really want to talk about all of that because I've done the reading on it. Some people think that this overseer it means the word bishop and some of your translations might have the word bishop right there in your Bibles. Um, some of them say overseer, some of them say elder there as well. And what people think was some the um, Episcopalian church has like uh, bishops and elders and pastors and uh, other churches like the, the brethren have seen this as an elder, which is like a ruling or, or teaching elder. But there are other elders that don't teach as well. But really for the point of this passage, I, I think for Baptists, for our church, we have pastors and we have deacons. And I think the emphasis of this passage for us today is talking about my role, Gail's role, who's a pastor for pastoral care, Phil's role, who's pastor for youth and young adults. And I think um, this is the main emphasis of the passage. People who are, have pastoral oversight but also preach and teach and handle God's word as well. Currently, we're looking for a new associate pastor because Phil and Michelle's ministry is finishing up at the end of the year. So it's interesting looking through this passage, isn't it? Because we'll be able to think, oh, do they, what traits do they have? What do they, you know, they've got to live up to this. So while the passage is for pastors, don't you switch off because whatever gift you have, 
we want to live in a way that honours God in everything. So this is applicable for you too. First thing that says in this passage is that he must, now an overseer must be above reproach. Now I've just put this slide here. I think this sense of being above reproach permeates the whole rest of these verses here. And I think it's the key. I think everything else that follows in these, in these verses is explaining what it means to live a life that's above reproach. Now, the word above reproach kind of means that uh, we're living in a way that is not bringing reproach against the church and God. You know, if you go to a city and it has just terrible, terrible roads, you could say the roads of that city are a reproach to that city. You know, they, they just bring that city's name down. Or if you go to a city and there's violence in the city, you say, you know, the, the way that people were violent in that city is a reproach to that city. And what this is saying, a pastor's life must be one that is above reproach, that doesn't bring shame to the name of Jesus, that their actions and their beliefs match up. And when you look at this person, there's nothing, you know, yuck and unholy that brings shame to the role. They must live in that way. And then Paul has a list. And we're not going to unpack every single one, but I'll try and give you a little bit of a sense of what it means. The husband of but one wife. Now, as you notice, we have a female pastor in our church. And we looked last week, and I'd love you to get the tape if you missed it from that one. But what we look in saying that this letter was written to a context, and right here Paul has just finished saying that he didn't want women to teach or preach in Ephesus. And we looked at the nature of the way the women were being, you know, really uh, responding to the false teaching and that they were also dressing up and they were look, acting in a way that seemed to be insubordinate to the men and the people from the outside were seeing that. And so Paul makes these things. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or preach here in Ephesus. And, and the reason that we said that that doesn't mean it applies today is because that's the key, ver- the sole verse, the st- only verse that sort of uh, stops, that has a prohibitive fact on women preaching. The rest of the New Testament supports that women can preach and teach and that there's no you know, exclusion on using those gifts, whether you're male or female. And so we looked at that. And here, Paul continues on his thought. And so he's saying, well, now in Ephesus, the, the emphasis that he's thinking is that it's on men, but that's surely not excluding women from having the role of pastor as well. And so here, that's why we have Gail Hill as a, as a full associate pastor and Phil as well that are pastors while I'm the senior pastor here as well. And this pastor is to be the husband of but one wife. And some people say, oh, this is against um, having more than one wife, you know. So it's saying that pastors can't have five wives. And I'm glad I read this because, no, no, no. (laughs) And many people look and they say, you know, back even in the time this was written, that could not be what Paul was meaning. I mean, Christians in the day when Paul was at Ephesus, they, they didn't have more than one wife and, and it wasn't on the heart of the people as well, so he can't mean that. And other people say, well, it must mean that in order to be a pastor, you can't have been um, divorced and remarried. You know, but as you look at um, the teachings on, on divorce and remarriage, uh, there, there are some exceptions to when it is uh, you know, not desired but acceptable um, not, not even acceptable, where Jesus said, you know, divorce must not be among you. But there's a time where, except for pornea, you know, a, 
koinonia, a, a polluting, a, a horribleness. People say sometimes it's a sexual pollution or just a, a horrible abusiveness you know, in that passage. And that's right, when people have come from a marriage like that and been divorced, I don't think he's talking that these people who have biblically faced that and come through that, broken and humble and ready again, cannot be pastors. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I don't think he's even saying that uh, someone whose wife has died or husband has died can no longer be a pastor because how can they be the pastor of one wife? You know, that's silly. He's not saying that. I think uh, uh, the other thing that he's not saying is that all pastors must have wives or husbands. They must be married. Now, you know how people read all these things into the one thing? What is he actually saying here? He's just saying that I think pastors should be faithful and honouring of the one that they're married to. They should live a pure, holy life, not one that is uh, looking and pursuing other relationships, but they're completely faithful to the one that they're married to. And I think this was the thrust of it. You know, there, were, there was often in Ephesus, you know, an immorality amongst uh, people within the church. And Paul's saying, this must be... Um, pastors must be the husband of but one wife and faithful to that wife. So it goes on uh, in the next part that he must be temperate. Must, uh, the above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate. Now, this has often been used to, uh, you know, the temperance movement where people don't drink. And I don't think that's what Paul's meaning here. What he's meaning is um, clear-headed, you know, um, Temperance is meaning not being someone who's got excesses, you know, so where they're um, excessively passionate or ration, you know, they're rash in their behaviour, but they have a control. And that's why the temperance movement uses it, you know, controlling, not being, you know, given over to alcohol. But this is saying hey, this person has to be temperate in everything that they do, controlled, clear-headed. It's the next, next one's very similar, self-control. So a pastor needs to be someone who can control his own uh, life in a way where he is in control. Remember the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And they also need to be respectable, someone that people look up to and can respect by the way that they live their lives. Another thing that they need to be doing as well is be hospitable. Um, often in the time in Ephesus when, when this was written, um, if, if you had become a Christian, you're often cut off to the, the access to a lot of the things and you had to, uh, hospita- hospitality was how you survived. Often you'd lose your job or you'd be persecuted and so many of the pastors in that time would open up their homes and help people who were struggling and pastors also, too, need to have a willingness to share their resources and to be hospitable and to show love in practical ways as well. Um, next thing is able to teach. And this was, is particular for pastors. Um, having the gift of teaching, having the willingness to wrestle and study and, and handle God's word well was crucial back in those days for people handling the truth. And Paul's highlighting that, and today it's no different. Um, Our pastors are not those who are just nice people who live a nice life, 
But we want our pastors to be those that wrestle with God's word, understand it, live according to it, and are able to teach from it so that each of us understand what God's word is saying and how it appropriates to our life because it's God's word and his spirit that transforms our lives as we are changed um, each and every day. And so to be able to handle that well is crucial for pastors. Also, what was going to be important is to be able to teach would mean you'd be able to refute error. So when you saw that there were false teachings going on, a, a leader, an overseer, a pastor, an elder would be able to look at the error that was going on and be able to teach what God's word actually says to refute that. And that is so important today, so important today that pastors do that, that you do that in your own lives, that small group leaders do that, that all of you seek to handle God's word well. But the gift of teaching, the ability to teach is crucial. Next it says, not given over, not given to drunkenness. And this uh, would have been just a terrible, terrible thing for people to see leaders who were uh, pastors uh, drinking to excess and getting drunk. And what they're saying is, no, you need to be self-controlled, you need to be temperate, you need to be people that are never, ever indulging in much wine, as some translations say. And so it's so important for pastors to live a life where they're not caught drinking or getting drunk to excess, you know, doing it in a way that is part of, you know, constantly engaging um, in, in drinking too much. You'll notice that it doesn't say that they should be teetotalers. And, you know, I think it's, um, you know, total abstainers. But I think it's, it's really crucial that pastors be very, very wise in this area of their life because many people look at their example. Another thing that it says is they should not be violent but gentle. You know, there are some people that are quick to anger and quick to lash out and they're saying, no, your pastors should never be like that. You should be able to be gentle in the way you deal with people, not quarrelsome either, not argumentative. You know, there are a lot of times I've found as a pastor... (laughs) Everybody wants an argument, you know? Um, and, and it's things that everybody feels passionate about, you know? There are so many things we could argue about, aren't there? I mean, we could argue about uh, everything, uh, like all the things, a lot of the things I've been talking about today. We could, you know, about whether it's an overseer or a preacher or an elder or whether it's a male or female, whether they're on drinking, on, you know, the husband of but one wife. There are so many things that we could start to focus on and argue about. And Satan loves it. He loves division. He loves disputes. He loves that. And so it's so important that they're not quarrelsome because what's been happening at Ephesus is the false teachers are doing that. We've got to keep going now. Not a lover of money. There are so many pastors today. My granddad, he he had to give his money away when people came to the door to help, you know, and and the family often went without meals. Today, we have a, you know, pastors are much better cared for. In fact, we often see pastors exploiting congregations by, you know, um, trying to raise money or teach that actually, you know, giving over and abundantly to fund pastors' lives and that, you know, can, can, is people teaching prosperity gospel and all that is terrible. And it's saying, not a lover of money, able to manage his family well. 
Um, it's interesting what it says here in, in the passage. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the church? This is crucial for pastors where we often find ourselves so busy and so tempted to neglect the ones we love so that we can do the great work of God. But you know, one of the things that pastors must never do is sacrifice their family for the ministry. I mean, this is the first ministry of a pastor to care and love for their family. And there's two things that pastors can do or anyone can do, or fathers today, as you're listening to this as well, is that you can abdicate from the lives of your children. You know, parents can do this, where you say, oh, you know, you'll be right, I love you, you'll know about it, but I've just got to work and I'm going to keep busy, I've got so many important things to do, you'll understand. And the child grows up without a father or without a mother that has been showing love to them. The other thing we can do is we can get up to our children, we can stand over them and say, you must do this, you must do this, and you must... And when we start controlling them and forcing them, the respect level just goes right down. And kids don't respect their parents. They feel controlled and condemned. And here it says, you know, he, uh, he must um, manage his own family well and see his children obey him with proper respect. The only way you can have your children obey you with proper respect is to have an a, a involvement that is intense and practical and always there, but always loving and never controlling, always wanting the best for your child and not you know, easing your own burdens, you know, not being harsh on them. And I think for pastors, this is where you really need to steel yourself, to stand up to many good and important needs around you, but prioritise your own relationship with God, your own family, and then the wider family. Because if you can do that well then you'll be loving and caring for your family. I remember when we finished, when I came to be a pastor um, and was looking at being accredited as an ordained pastor, Roland Croucher said, the best thing that you can do as a minister going into pastoral ministry is get all your baggage sorted out. Go and see a counsellor. And people said, why, why? And he said, well, because your family of origin often is how you'll pastor the church. So if you had a father that was always, well, you should be doing that, you should be doing that, you'll get up in the pulpit and go, you should be doing that, you should be doing that. You know? And if you have been someone who's abdicated you know, from your children, left them all alone, you'll just say, go out and do whatever you want. You know? And so what he's saying is, pastors, the best thing you can do is learn how to be involved and loving but not controlling and helping people thrive. We're going to just go through now, not a recent convert, Many people, when they're early, think they know everything about what it means to follow Christ, and they've never faced some of the challenges and the toughness that can come as being a leader, a Christian leader. They get shocked when they see you know, loving Christian people get their nails out or get their arguments or start to fight. And this, you, you know, in order to be a leader, you need to be aware how you can love people, even when they're nasty to you. Um, the next one is you must have a good reputation with outsiders because people will look to you and to see whether you are really living out what your faith is. And I think this is crucial. I think this comes right back where Paul starts with, you must be above reproach and here's a reputation with outsiders. So here's the list. Here's the list. So now what can you do as a result of this list today? You've got this list. I reckon the first thing that you should do is we, we as a church should be really 
wise at the way we appoint leaders, don't you think? I mean, we should have this list in front of us and we should be looking in to say, oh, what are they like in these areas? Is there self-control? Is there gentleness? Is there kind? You know, is there all these things in this list? Uh, is this what our pastors are like? I think the second thing we can really do is care for our pastors. Go out of our way to, to really care for them. Don't walk over their family time or their rest time and think, how can I help and support this pastor in my role? You know, some of the ways the church does that. I've just been down to Melbourne. I caught the train down and spent um, a day down there with different mentors. And the church said, we want you to go and do that. You allowed me to do that. This Tuesday, all of our pastors and staff are meeting together for half a day of retreat and we're just going to spend time in prayer together and reflection together. That's a way you are helping us uh, make sure that we're not just running around but we're getting cared for. We have pastors that are, that, you know, I go through a review um, regularly as well. We, we try and ensure that each of our pastors are reading and growing and praying and keeping them accountable for that. The third thing I think that we can do is keep an appropriate eye on our pastors and pastoral leaders. If you see anything that is in the slightest offensive or inappropriate, then it would be good just to gently come up and ask. And if you get a defensive answer from me or from Gail or from Phil or from other leaders, then go and talk to another pastor and say, have you noticed this thing with, with Jonathan? Or, you know, have you noticed that? And then if they still, you know, you can take it before the, the, uh, to a deacon and they can bring it up. And this is just a healthy accountability. I'm not talking about nitpicking and judging and doing that, but if there's something that is offensive, it's important to talk about it. We've got to talk about these things. I think fourth thing is pray. Pray for your leaders. Do you know if you're in a battle, do you know who you try and take out? You go for the captain or the, or the leader. And I think we're in a spiritual battle like never before. Lives, eternal lives are at stake. And I think if Satan wanted to pull people down, myself, Gar, Phil would be the people that Satan would really love to destroy our ministry. So could you pray for us? Pray that we'd be growing, that we'd be open, that we'd be teachable, that we'd be people who are living out this kind of lift in our lives. And pray that we'd always continue to have a passion for the gospel and helping people grow. And the fifth thing I think we can do is you can try and live this out in your lives every single day. I want you to imagine a church that did everything it can to help its pastors, prayed for its pastors, encouraged its pastors. Can you imagine what kind of church we would be if because of the lives of our pastors, other people like you desired to become pastors? Can you imagine that? You thought, these guys are people that I admire and respect. If God would use me in this way, I'm ready to, to be a pastor. Can you imagine if we saw that as a noble task? Can you imagine if the community, looking at the lives of our pastors and of the leaders of our church, looked at us as a church and said, wow, their lives really match what they believe. And our name throughout the community was one that always brought a smile rather than shame to the name of Jesus. Can you imagine a church where everybody sought to live these principles out? Well, I think that's what Paul would be calling us to do today. So let's pray as we close. God, thank you that you want your church to be one that is above reproach, where its leaders, where its people live in the way that their lives and their beliefs match. 
God, we pray that our church will never bring shame to the name of your son, Jesus. And God, that our church would continue to be a place where people come and meet face-to-face with you, risen Lord Jesus. We pray for those that have been affected and suffered because leaders and people they admire um, really blew it. And we pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes fixed on you above all, Lord Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, right in front of you is your um, blue card.